welcome to the history of Vikings. Witchcraft played a fascinating role in the Christianization of Scandinavia during the High Middle Ages. From societal roles such as the Cirrus and archaeological discoveries containing the remains of these figures, to Old Norse literature, pagan rituals, and perceived interactions with otherworldly beings. Today's annual Halloween-inspired episode will discuss witchcraft and the Christianization of the North during the Viking Age. Joining me to discuss this topic is returning guest Dr. Armin Jakobsen. Armin is Professor of Medieval Icelandic Literature at the University of Iceland and a published novelist. In the past, he has been a postman, a high school teacher, journalist, critic, and reality TV star. He has invented names for the streets of Reykjavik and mainly loves to write, bearing many obscure publications to his name. Before we get into my conversation with Dr. Jakobsen, I wanted to let you know that today's episode is sponsored by Norse Tradesmen, a company that provides premium Norse replicas, such as genuine drinking horns and functional weapons, carefully handcrafted using only the finest natural materials. Norse Tradesmen offers a vast selection of historical replicas, including their bearded battle axe, battle-ready swords, genuine oxhorn tankards, drinking horns, and much more, all drawn from historical sources rooted in Viking history and mythology. And now, get your very own customized horn tankard. Submit your own text to be engraved by hand right here in the USA by Norse Tradesman's in-house Norse historian. Tankards and ale horns, linked to the Norse traditions of family and fellowship, can be purchased and shipped within one day via their website, norsetradesman.com. Be sure to follow the link in the description of this episode. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Armin Jakobsen. Professor Armin Jakobsen, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to have you back, Dr. Jakobsen. I was telling you earlier before that it's something of an annual tradition to call upon your unique area of expertise around the time of Halloween here in the United States. And last year, we had a conversation around this time about Viking Age ghosts, zombies, and trolls. This year, in a similar vein, we'll be discussing witches and Christianization of the North. Of course, Before we get into our conversation today, I'd just love to point listeners to your book, The Troll Inside You, Paranormal Activity in the Medieval North, link to that in the description of this episode, and your public Facebook page where they can keep up with all of your fascinating work. When we talk about witches in pagan times around the Viking Age, what exactly do we mean by that, Professor Jakobsen? It seems to me that that may be an ambiguous term. Yes, this is precisely why I got into this field. And I had no idea that I would be a Halloween figure because of this research. And the first thing I wanted to look at was the word troll. And I found it, it was really ambiguous. 
and it's central to witchcraft in the Middle Ages. So it's not used as it was later, mainly about the paranormal ochres in the wilderness, but more about your neighbor that could be a witch. Mm. So, so it's a, it's a complicated term, and witches in the Middle Ages are also complicated. And when you study the examples, they there's a quite a variety of witchcraft, and it's in a way it's central. I think I've, I've begun to think in recent years that witchcraft is far more central to the medieval depiction of paganism than I previously thought. What we need to keep in mind is that the sources for pre-Christian religions of the North are from Christianity itself, mostly. So all the written sources, they are from Christians, and they are written long after the pagan period. But still, fascinated medieval historians of Iceland and the Western North so much that a large part of the historical writing of the 13th, 14th, and even the 15th centuries is focused in the late 10th and early 11th century, which is precisely the period when Christianity became the dominant religion of the North. And the question is, during this watershed period, how do you define the heathens, the people who existed before Christianity or who did not join the Christian world, anyone else? And there, I think, which is a very useful category. So in a way, in a medieval narrative depicting the 11th century in Iceland, and even the pre-Christian period, a witch is somebody who has not entered Christianity fully like the rest of the populace. So there is clearly harmony between the pagan period, the pagan era, and witchcraft. This is a relationship captured in the word Fortneska, which is hard to gloss. It kind of means the ancient time, which used both about witchcraft and mainly about witchcraft in the sources, but it's also used for the past, and mainly the heathen period. So this is a term that refers to both witchcraft and the heathen period. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think this is a, a worldview that's reflected in this vocabulary. Indeed. Now, what is the distinction between the term witch and the term pagan? During this period, during the Middle Ages, did the term witch have any particular negative connotation, or was it simply a general term used to describe those who failed to convert to Christianity? The word witch is actually not used much. It mostly, they speak of witchcraft, and they call people who have abilities of that kind or are practitioners of witchcraft. They call, call them things like selkona or selkart, but they more often refer to their activities, which are called tuxkatur or various other names. 
So there, there are so many terms about witchcraft, but slightly fewer about the witch, her or himself. And I used witch both for male and female practitioners because it's suggested in some of the sources that witchcraft is a gender-bending activity so that male practitioners of witchcraft are not quite as male as everyone else who is male. And, and this could be the same for female practitioners. So and this is this is not normal because being a witch means uh, having a double identity, a dual identity, you could say. And with regard to this sort of double identity, is there any inclination as to how that was interpreted by perhaps Christians or people throughout the medieval Scandinavian and Icelandic landscape? Was this something that was seen in a negative light, a form of dark magic, something paranormal? You know, what was the interpretation, if and as far as we can tell? Well, witchcraft is generally seen as negative from the standpoint of the texts that are that see Christianity as the norm. So witchcraft is in a way a deviation from the norm. But still, there are characters that practice witchcraft without necessarily being negative. And this is especially before Christianity becomes the official religion. This is seen as, as, as less blameworthy. So the answer is yes and no. It's a very scholarly answer, I guess. Yes and no, being a witch is very negative. But in a way, it's still possibly desirable because of all the power that comes with it. And the same applies for the ability of witches to change shape, which is really vague in these sagas, like what happens when a human changes shape? Do they become an actual animal or not? Can they be in two places at once? It, this is suggested, never explicitly stated. And this is, I think, very typical of how the historical narratives deal with witchcraft. It cannot be fully explained, possibly because it's supposed to be occult and like um, exotic. And it's not supposed to be something that normal people desire, but you can still see several cases of normal people desiring it. That's fascinating. And witchcraft and then the spread of Christianity throughout Scandinavia. I understand that when that Christianization first started taking place, there were people who sort of, with regard to their religion or spirituality perhaps embraced a, a double life, what somebody might consider today, in that they venerated the old pagan deities, as well as sort of infused the Christian God into their religion as well. Is that, is that right? Is that something we see during this period? Yeah, yeah, this is something that the historical narratives actually talk about. And there's no, like, Christianity arrived in Scandinavia in steps. So we have Christianity in Scandinavia quite early in the ninth century, but then paganism is still around in the late 12th, early 13th century. There are parts of the north that are still pagan. 
with a cohabitation of some 400 years or more even between the two customs. And there is also a fusion, like the dominant religion or official religion as Christianity becomes does not necessarily have rules about every part of human behavior. Of course, in the very long period that Christianity was official, the official religion of Europe, it tried to establish as many rules and guidelines as possible about everything. But there were always things that were outside the realm of Christianity and, and are often referred to as superstition. And they can sometimes be essentially pagan. There is also, you can also see in the Icelandic sources that in the earliest sources, it is suggested that Icelanders just threw away paganism and embraced Christianity in one summer at the parliament. But it's still a part of the, the Christianization that people are allowed to keep some of their old customs. Eating horse meat is one of them, and another is child exposure. But it's suggested in other sources that this was only a very brief period of adaptation. And then in the, as the sources developed in the 13th century, and especially in the 14th century sources, there is more and more interest in the conflict. and. This more and more realization that this was not done in one moment, and that actually some parts of the pagan religion survived well into the 11th century at least. And I think Gatisa calls it something like the embers of paganism. Some of the embers of paganism survived into the 1030s. And by that, the author means witchcraft and, you know, the old knowledge. And Grettir Osmundesson, the protagonist of Gretisaga, where this phrase is used, this is possibly a 15th century uh, narrative, could be earlier. The author discusses this when introducing the witch that is eventually the downfall of Grettir. Grettir is killed by a witch. Yes. Or a curse of the witch, which the adversaries of the Sarah heroes can be paranormal figures. But they are also like a witch, both a paranormal figure and a regular human being that has children and family life. So this is one interesting aspect of the witch, that the witch is a regular human and is still not a regular human. And the same, of course, applies to the zombie or the ghost. And this is another paranormal figure that's often connected with witchcraft in the sagas, and the same kind of vocabulary is used for both witches and zombies. So, and even though it's not stated everywhere, the general idea seems to be that zombies mostly begin to walk because of witchcraft. So, the witchcraft is the cause of the zombie or the ghost or the vampire or whatever you call them that haunt Iceland in the 11th century. And Gretislav, of course, has a famous undead of the kind, the, the famous glamour that Gretislav has to deal with. And so, so this is the story 
that has a lot of paranormal encounters, but it still takes place. It's among the latest sagas in that it takes place mostly in the Christian period. It's, it doesn't, it's not much of the sagas that happens in, during all of Greta's adult life is during the Christian period. And yet the society, society is full of these remnants from the hidden period, which are the ghosts. You know, the, the Halloween figures, you could call them. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, in Old Norse mythology, we see this, this particularly female, Cirrus figure. I mean, the, the famous poem, Voluspa, seriously, um, you know, particularly Odin and the Cirrus. With regard to mythology, you know, could we call these sorceresses witches? And then I understand also, not to get away from the mythology, and forgive me, perhaps this is kind of two questions jumbled up into one. You know, we see these, these figures, these female figures in mythology, but then also in archaeology, don't we see graves of, of females with great iron staffs and other sort of things that might hint at their role in society? Yes, this is one reason why I have focused more on the actual sagas than the mythological texts, but they do have some of the same kind of figures. So the word Völva or Vala does not only appear in the Völuspau, but also in sagas. And there, the, the Völva is clearly a witch, an old witch. There's an episode in Laxdala saga where the protagonist, Gudrun, is crying so much, her tears of repentance disturb the grave of a witch that has previously been buried there. She has been buried like the church has been erected over a grave of a witch, and the witch is tortured by the tears of repentance of the Christian woman. And you can see here a typical conflict between the past or the present or the heathen or the Christian that the legitimate tears of the Christian lady who is also in the end a nun, they drive away the witch. And in the topsy-turvy universe of the witch, these are like burning tears. So these positive tears become fiendish to the fiend. And then the grave is found and the bones are taken away. So this is like an archaeological discovery only in the 11th century. But of course, we still have discoveries of possible witch burials today. So it's not unlikely in my mind that this is an actual function that some people had and people believed in their paranormal powers. The Sibyl of the Wollesbau is possibly one such entity. The problem, of course, with what we call Old Norse mythology is that it comes from diverse sources. We don't know exactly, like it's a, it's a, it's a compendium. Snorri Sturluson's Edda is a compendium of various myths, probably some genuinely pagan, but some possibly diluted that he assembles into his own structure. And we don't really know to what degree this structure represents actual pagan narrative. And Völuspá is among his main sources. And of course, in Snorri's 
text, both the Edda and the Heimskringla, there's a strong connection between Odin, the main Norse god, and witchcraft. So you can say that almost that witches, even practitioners of magic, they and the gods are in a way the same thing to the Christian authors. Like Odin is a super witch, and what he does and what the witches that exist in Iceland do are more or less the same thing because they're not part of the legitimate supernatural activity that belongs to the church, of which there is plenty in the same period, like uh, miracles and saints and uh, all kinds of like Christian otherworldly experiences. But at the same time, we have the pagan experiences that are seem to be quite similar, but are evil because they don't belong to the proper paranormal world. At the beginning of today's show, I introduced our sponsor, Norse Tradesman. If you love the Viking Age as much as I do, go ahead and pay them a visit at norsetradesman.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Norse Tradesman offers an incredible array of Norse-inspired handcrafts, ranging from swords and axes to clothing, pendants, and drinking horns, all rooted in Norse history, mythology, and tradition. Plus, now Norse Tradesman offers custom hand-engraved horn tankards. Submit your own text to be engraved, or even get your initials translated into a Norse bind rune by their in-house Norse linguistics expert, Dr. Cody Dees. The custom mugs make for incredible gifts for the heathens in your life. Imagine everyone in your horde with their very own personalized horn mug. Aside from offering great products, Norse Tradesman is passionate, just like I am on this podcast, about the rich history of medieval Scandinavia. Norse Tradesman's goal is to transport its patrons back to the enchanting times of our ancestors. Their products display the craftsmanship and authenticity of true Norse tradesmen that fashioned goods with incredible attention to detail. All of their craftsmen use traditional techniques to mimic the function and appearance of medieval Norse crafts. But most importantly, they do not forget the values of the culture that inspired the creation of Norse tradesmen. Honor is of the utmost importance with this company, and they certainly do not fail you when it comes to personal attention and customer service. As founder Neil Goldsmith has said, Norse tradesmen will never rest until their allies are pleased. So visit Norse Tradesmen at norsetradesmen.com or follow the link in this episode's description. Lose yourself in the magic of times long past by reliving the Viking Age through handcrafted products from Norse tradesmen. So certainly archaeology hints at the fact that the seeress, the, the witch, was probably a role in Old Norse pagan society. My next question then is, was this role dominated by women as far as we can tell? And is there any inclination as to what some of those rituals 
or tasks carried out in such a role would have looked like? Well, the sagas give conflicting information about this because while it is said that witchcraft or at least seder, which some people believe is only a particular kind of witchcraft, although I'm not quite sure myself, some some sources say this is feminine, but at the same time, of all the known witches in the uh, Norse sources, and uh, François Tillman has assembled a large collection of examples of witches. Quite a number of them are males, and possibly even more, there are even more named male witches than female. So it does, if we believe the sagas, and of course, these are sources that they're much later than the period they are describing. So there's a gap of two, three hundred years when they're describing the 10th and 11th centuries. We don't know if this is accurate, but I think it's, it's most likely that witches survived into Christianity. And that when people, the, the historians write about the pagan witches, they do have some knowledge of most pagan witches that are in a way still pagan because they just belong to the half pagan part of society that's frowned upon by the dominant religion, but might still possibly exist. So I think I would not rule out there being witches long after Christianity was adopted. But we don't really know what witches do. Some of them seem seem to use their voice a lot. They often seem to turn their backside in some way. There is the eye of the witch that often has powers. There is the spoken curse. So there's a variety of methods used by witches. Like they will they will walk around things counterclockwise. And this is possibly because they belong to the devil or or like the demonic part of the world. So so there's there's all kinds of ritual, but normally they're not described in great detail. But the variety of rituals that exist only in the sagas kind of suggests that they had various methods. Well, there are other paranormal figures, certainly trolls, ghosts, zombies, etc., that occur in Old Norse literature. Are there any notable interactions between the witch and such other paranormal figures? Yeah, I would say they are... They are defined as more or less the same thing. So the word troll is used for both a ghost and a witch. And in fact, these are the two main meanings of the word in a medieval Icelandic text. So a troll is primarily a witch or a ghost. And then it can also be something else. But the primary meaning is a troll or a witch. So it means a semi-pagan or pagan paranormal figure, paranormal power that is uh, destructive and negative and, and demonic, I would say, too. So that, that's what the troll vocabulary refers to. It refers to the demonic and the evil and the negative. It's also clear that it's a mutable state. 
because we have verbs that indicate transformation, like titla or introl, which means changing either yourself or something else into a troll. So it's not like, uh, so, so it's possible to become a troll. And we have a very, I don't know if I discussed this last year, but there is the example of Omunder, who is a kind of Blofeld figure in Örvarot saga. If Örvarotr is James Bond, then Omunder is his Blofeld. He's an antagonist that keeps popping up and causes mischief both himself and through others. And he is not a man. He's a spirit. He's an evil, he's a demonic spirit. And it's explained or, or, or not explained, as it may be, in that he had lived with the Permians and they had enrolled him so that he was transformed into what he is now, which is unclear what is. So he is not able to die anymore, which possibly means that he is an undead, like he's no longer living, but still not dead. So this is this omen that is definitely a paranormal figure and has various disguises, much like Blofeld, and uh, haunts Örvarotr-like ghosts too. So this is, this is, clearly there has been performed some kind of ritual that changed Omunter from a regular living human into something that is in some way living and in some way human, but still not living and not human. And this is this strange um, nefarious state that all the witches and zombies exist in, sort of between regular living humanity and the other world. So they walk among us, but they're still not us. And this uncanny aspect of both the witch and the troll is fundamental because they are not just the other, they're also us. This is, I think there's a, like the, they're not totally alien. And in fact, hum, humans, human historians and fiction writers have a very hard time imagining anything that's not in some way human. Like even when animals are the antagonists, they have human speech and a human brain of some kind. And, you know, the aliens of 20th century fiction, they resemble humans quite a lot. Like even though they're very bizarre, they still have, you know, a head and arms and legs, much like us. So, so this is like, uh, in a way, the fate of the paranormal other to be a, a, a human and non-human at the same time. And of course, the Halloween figures, the traditional Halloween figures that come and do they still trick and treat in the U.S.? Yes, they do indeed. They do indeed. Many of the costumes are kind of like paranormal others that are human, but still not human. Monstrous humans, you could say. Most definitely. Well, this is fascinating to me and my listeners. What are some of your favorite pieces? And I'm, I'm sure, obviously, this is, this is certainly your specialty. So perhaps you don't have a particular favorite. But are there any, you know, pieces of Old Norse literature highlighting 
the occurrence of a witch in society, or even in mythology, what we would consider today as mythology, that you find most intriguing or most relevant to this topic? Well, this is a very interesting question because scholars tended to distinguish between realistic and non-realistic narratives. And they used to say that some of the most famous sagas were the realistic narratives. But when you begin to look at them, they are full of paranormal events. So among the most famous sagas like Njál saga, Gretti saga, Erbike saga, Egil saga, Lakstala saga, they all have extremely interesting paranormal encounters. Gunnar, the protagonist in the first half of Njál saga, he appears as a ghost after his death. People have very strange dreams. There is a teenager who has a vision that is really affects him so that he falls into, he faints and is in a coma for days because of the compelling nature of the, of the vision. Eil Saga is full of magic and shape-shifting also. And Erbike Saga has one of two of the more famous Ghost narratives, but I think like because I've already mentioned Gratisaga, that this has to be one of my favorites because is it both has the duel between Gratin and the ghost Glaumer, who is referred to in one of Andrew Lang's retelling from 1897 as Glaumer the Vampire. And I find that highly significant because 1897 is also the year that Dracula was published. And at, in this year, Andrew Long calls Glaumer a vampire. And then when I later read the Iceland, first Icelandic translation of Dracula, the translator uses the word draugur, which means ghost, for Dracula. So it's very clear that in around near 1900, people did not distinguish between the Icelandic ghost and the Romanian vampire. And Glaumur is in a way such a typical fiend because he arrives at his farmstead soon after, this is like 20, 20 years after Christianity has been established as the main religion of Iceland. And he comes from Sweden, which possibly is the most pagan part of Scandinavia at the time. He is terrifying to look at. He is so demonic in appearance when he's alive that people become terrified. And he refused to fast before Christmas. So he asks for meat before Christmas and people are too scared not to feed him meat. And then he says, it was better when people were said to be heathens and they could eat meat. So this meat-eating fiend actually says, he's, he makes a statement that it's better to be a pagan than to be a Christian. And you know, how demonic and evil can you get in a 15th century Christian narrative? And then later he becomes, like this is when he's still nominally at least a traditional human, but then later he's killed by an ochre, this unspecified ochre in the valley. And Glaumer is 
killed by it and manages to drive it away. This is the reason he's hired as a shepherd, because the, everyone else is terrified of the ochre. And this ochre is really unspecified. You know what it is, nobody knows. But the ochre vanishes after Glaumer is killed, but he takes its place and becomes a bigger ochre than the ochre he's driven away. And this is often the case with evils. Yes. If you try to, if you try to banish evil using another evil, you will just get a bigger evil instead of the previous evil. This is a this is a really in many ways a typical but a really well constructed paranormal legend. And then first they hire a Ghostbuster because you know Yes. Gret is the original Ghostbusters narrative. Indeed. Ghostbuster and he is killed. And then Gretel comes as the second Ghostbuster to deal with the with Glaumer. And Gretel is at this time almost a professional Ghostbuster, you know, like uh, Bill Murray and his friend. He's a, he's, this is almost his job at the time to fight paranormal others. And you can see this figure in a lot of today's entertainment. You have the new Netflix series, The Witcher, which takes place in a medieval setting. And for me, this is just Gatisar, even though it's it's not uh, staged in Iceland. And we have, there was a show called Supernatural on TV a few years back. And this also concerns like professional defenders against the dark arts that just roam the country and, and fight various paranormal beings. And of course, the X-Files has a very similar theme, except they are, in that case, government officials, which is a nice change. And Gretel has this role. And you, could all, you can also call him a vampire slayer. That's another, you know, popular show of the early 21st century. So Gretel, he is hired to defend the valley against Glaumur. And in the end, he kills him, but has to survive. He has to live with the curse Glaumur inflicts on him. And then later, he's killed by this old witch that is the mother of his enemy, and she makes him unable to defend himself by her curse. She uses a, a, a tree root. She curses a root and sends it to, to attack him. So this is a, a, this is a narrative where the paranormal is really fundamental. Like the main, the main conflict of the narrative is between Gretel and paranormal others. Although it's also between Gretel and society, because Gretel is essentially a misfit. He's an outlaw. And this is precisely why he's used to fight uh, the demonic forces. So I, I like Gretel Saga and its paranormal. The other famous sagas also have really interesting paranormal events that may be less fundamental to the to the main story. But still, I would hesitate to, to see it, say even that. Many people who've read Nyalza, for example, don't don't remember that there's an there's a scene in Nyalza where a character literally gets a vision of hell, like he stares into hell itself. So this is a very paranormal saga as well. It's, it, it, it ends with a strongly Christian conflict 
between pagans and Christians, where demons appear and attack normal humans. Dr. Jakobsen, it has been simply a delight having you on the podcast again this year. I'd love to point listeners to your book, The Troll Inside You, Paranormal Activity in the Medieval North, and also your public Facebook page, which they can find in addition to your book via a link in the description of this episode. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Jakobsen. It has been an honor to keep up with this annual tradition celebrating your fascinating work. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you. Nice to come again. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't hesitate to get in touch. My email is noah at thehistoryofvikings.com. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us here again for another episode.